Hi, my name is John Kim, and I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth. I share my feelings and revelations. I believe in casual or clinical and with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. Today's guest is an entrepreneur with an amazing story, by the way. I mean, a rocky story, meaning from rags to riches to bankruptcy Back to rags, and then building all over again. Back to riches, and to me, the you know the 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 people with the greatest character arc like that, those are always the people with the most amazing story. And of course, character follows, right? Because stories like that build character. Um, he is David Meltzer, and I'm sure you've seen him on the internet because he's everywhere. And uh, I gotta say, he holds up, and he's a good dude. And when I say he's a good dude, uh, I. I, I, for me, I know it sounds very casual, but when I call a man a good dude, it's like the highest form of compliment. And I don't know him that well. We don't go way back. I just met him, but I could tell right away that uh, he's he's who he says he is. And that's what I mean by, by holding up, right? Because a lot of people, um, a lot of coaches, a lot of speakers, a lot of these uh, gurus, quote unquote, um, they present themselves in a certain way online and then you meet them and they, you know, they, they may be different, but, uh, David is like butter, meaning consistent all the way through. Um, and, and, and what a privilege to have him on my podcast. There is lots of wisdom in this episode. It is packed like a Snickers bar and, uh, super excited to have him on my, on my, on a, my podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, David Meltzer. The first thing I want to do is actually I want to give you a compliment, and I know that uh, if you announce to someone you're going to give them a compliment, it kind of takes away from the compliment. Um, <laughs> it's like giving them a gift and saying, look what I got you. Uh, but right. I, I feel like there's a lot of people online um, who are like you, um, you know, doing a lot of content, being very active, and then you be, meet them in person, and they don't hold up or you know, they're a little bit different. Um, but I got to say, you know, I think that you are very consistent. I think you hold up. And when I met you, I just felt like it was just a complete extension of all the stuff that you put out there in the world, which is um, uh, amazing. I think which is good. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to start with this because I worked with kids and uh, a lot of kids had single parents. Uh, six kids and a single mom. Yep. <laughs> Tell me about that. How, how, did, how did she raise six kids, and what was that like for you growing up? So, you know, it was really interesting because I had an extraordinary upbringing. Even though my dad left when I was five, I had this amazing mom, and I was, like, super happy. Five boys, one girl, and kind of driven by academics. You know, my mom didn't believe the fetus wasn't uh, fully developed until after graduate school. Uh, drove drove us to school to be, you know, doctor, lawyer, failure. I joke around, but she used two techniques. Uh, my siblings were incredible. They academically incredible. You we went to Harvard, Penn, Columbia, summa cum laude. I still don't know any better students than my siblings. Um, but she did it, you know, two ways. One, uh, she woke everyone up at 5 a.m., so everyone up in our house, uh, we could do whatever we wanted at night or after school, uh, but usually we didn't have enough energy to <laughs> Friday. <laughs> and then the second thing she did uh, was she was a black belt in the martial arts. So even oh, though wow. she didn't look like it, yeah, she was a third degree black belt in the martial art of Jewish guilt. So mm. I always tell people, <laughs> you, you <laughs> right. wake your kids up early and make them feel guilty and they'll be extremely successful. Um but moreover, what was interesting is as happy as I was, and we were living in a two-bedroom apartment, my mom worked two jobs. She was a teacher, packed our dinners in a station wagon, and then took us to convenience stores to fill up uh, turnstiles for greeting cards at the 7-Eleven and, and other things like that. I literally, I mean, um, I was really happy. The only time I wasn't was uh, when financial distress came over my mom, and I caught her crying because a car broke down or the dishwasher broke down or you know, something else had occurred. And so in my mind, since the only time I wasn't happy or my mom wasn't happy was because of finances, I immediately connected the fact that if I could make a lot of money, that I'd, I'd be happy. 
And so I decided, unlike my siblings, who wanted to make my mom happy by getting good grades and, uh, you know, going to Harvard, Penn and Columbia, I personally wanted just to make a ton of money to buy my mom a house and a car. So wh- when did I, that belief get imprinted in you? I mean, how old were you? Were you really young? Were you like, you know, 12 yeah. or were you? Okay. When my dad left. Oh, yeah, younger. I remember my dad was my hero. And he, uh, in the 70s, was wealthy, married a lady closer to my age than his. But in my mind, my dad was my hero because he made a lot of money. And, you know, was it back then there's deadbeat dads, right? They didn't go after no matter how much the guy made, you could kind of get away with it. Well, one of the most guilt-ridden things I still have to process is I remember at seven-year-old telling my mom, you know, as much as I wanted to buy her a house and a car, telling my mom she was a loser. <laughs> that she had to be more like my dad. <laughs> because you were because but, you were judging her, uh, you're judging them on how much uh, money they had. Money, right? yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, exactly right. And so, you know, money played a critical role. I remember telling my mom at five that I'd be a millionaire and retire. And I promised her I'd buy a mom, my mom a house and a car when I made my first million and retire. Wow, I at five. Was <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was like picking my changed. nose and trying to trying to even put my shirt on right at five years old. That's crazy. Oh, no, yeah. I was uh, actually like picking up returnables and helping out, you know, probably drug dealers in the neighborhood for, you know, a dollar or two doing things I didn't even know I was supposed to be doing. Because I was very, very money conscious. And throughout you know, my entire life just on how I could attract money, what that wealth meant to me. And I think that relationship with money is what truly changed, not my ability to attract it. How how uh, much do you think that, you know, when you are having those kind of beliefs that, of course, start to live in your subconscious as a five-year-old, how much of that do you think rippled into your life and, and, and eventually success? A lot. I think in three, that conscious side of it, it really trained me to think, say, and do things in a manner to attract wealth. And then my belief system and my subconscious was, you know, completely conditioned like a muscle with neural pathways to create disciplines and habits. Uh, And also a sensory cortex of, you know, I felt good and proud and worthy when I made money, right? It was a competitive thing that I wanted to make. I couldn't compete with my siblings academically. So, you know, athletically and economically, I could compete. Not only compete, but I was superior uh, to doing so. Yeah, you played and football. So, yeah, and you know, which was unheard of in my family. Mm. And so it wasn't hard. It, talk about a low bar to beat. I mean, trying to get better grades than my siblings was next to impossible. Right. But to play better, play better football than my siblings was uh, pretty easy. <laughs> what what position did you play? I was, I played running back and okay. punt returner, kick returner. And then in college, they uh, I was a, a, a weak cornerback as well, so I played defense. Yeah, when I gave you a hug the other day, I felt muscles. I felt like this is a solid guy. <laughs> this guy could run with the football for sure. Um, so at what age did you um, experience financial success for the first time? Like at what age did you start to make money where you're like, oh, my God, this is actually I'm, – I'm, I'm, you know, yeah. getting, getting rich. I'm heading toward my island. Yeah, and it was funny because I, I I dabbled in my uh, my skill set of making money. So it was pretty funny because in college, I sold. I needed money, and so I sold educational systems in college, which was two appointments a night if they got you the leads, and they were. It was really a funny thing, but they bought uh, leads of new families, people that just had babies, and then you go into these. Uh, houses with this young couple that just had their first baby. And I tell the story of how academic my family was and how my mom read to me from the time I was little and Harvard, Penn, Columbia, you know, the whole bit. And meanwhile, you would sell them what back then was called an educational system, which was really Encyclopedia Britannica yeah. with a bunch of other, <laughs> which, right. and, they, and they give you a shelf, but like every, you know, for the babies, they'd send books to the mom that she could read, and then they had the three to five liter toddler books with Pip and Sis, and all the way up to an encyclopedia. But it literally was an eighteen year finance deal, and with the interest rate probably of twenty four or thirty six percent. But why I say I learned my skill set is, you know, I was in you know, twenty years old in college, making more money than most people because I had such a high closing rate, right? Uh, and I I got a taste of sales. Um, and then uh, in law school, I sold, which ended up how I got my job, but I sold 
from 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. in the summer, tennis shoes, incoming sales at Roadrunner Sports in San Diego. And I learned, you know, headset, you know, hey, Roadrunner Sports, number one superstore. How can I help you? <laughs> right. And I like upsell into Thurlow socks and tell them that if you had two pairs of carbon sold uh, new balances that they'd last longer if you rotated your shoes. And I learned, but I was the top sales rep and I was making more money selling at the shoe place than I was at the law firm downtown. And when I graduated law school, like you said, it's the first time I made real money. I chose, instead of being an oil and gas litigator, I chose to sell legal research online. And within nine months of graduating law school, I was a millionaire. Wow. So you... Uh knew early on you had a gift in sales and then you got on the internet um really early and really so early. <laughs> pretty much out of college you now are technically a millionaire at at that age could you handle that like what was that like for you or did you did that go to your ego and, and what did you do with that money that's so good because no one i mean i do a ton of interviews no one's ever asked me that question right they've always asked me what affected that but like Ironically, at first, for the first at least three years of making that much money, it, it actually worked to increase my responsibility. I was so afraid that I would stop making money that I saved everything. I, after I bought my mom a house and a car and paid off my law loans, I, I didn't buy new socks. New I had three hand-me-down suits because I couldn't afford suits when I graduated law school. Uh, I had three hand-me-down suits that I wore until they shined. I mean, literally, I had a pair of socks and shoes that had a hole in it, not only because I wanted to save money, but because I thought they were good luck. But for the first three years, all that money actually terrified me, so I didn't spend it. Oh, so the, um, the fear of uh, now that you now that you had it, the fear of losing it made you want to earn more. Yeah. It's and funny because it. I would have I would have spent the whole thing over a weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that came later in my life. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, and I I think you have such an amazing story and character arc, and we'll get into that. So so now you're in college, you're you're a millionaire, and now this is uh, adding you know coal to your fire. You're now super motivated. How did you end up becoming a sports agent and all that? Yeah. So what happened was um, I moved from my company that I worked for sold for three point four billion dollars. With the B in 1995, uh, and I was smart enough to brand myself as a technology guru instead of a lawyer. So I went up to the Silicon Valley because I saw a lot of opportunity, and I always had a vision uh, and an ability. I'd call it an unconscious competency to understand where wealth could be attracted or opportunity existed. And so I went up to the Silicon Valley, and instead of working in the internet space, I moved to the wireless space, transcoding the internet to lap phones and Palm Sevens. It's called middleware. And so utilizing my sales skills, uh, I took a job uh, raising money. Basically, it was a director position. So I raised $169 million for a startup. And uh, then part <laughs> that's like yeah. a That's like action movie money. Uh, yeah. Then yeah. I became and parlayed my sales skills into being a young CEO of the world's first smartphone. So Windows CE uh, device, uh, they didn't have an Apple device back then in 1999. So I became CEO of Samsung's first smartphone. It was called the PC-E-Phone. Uh, and from there, became a multimillionaire. I invested my money wisely in real estate and technology. Uh, I owned a golf course at Ski Mountain, lots of stocks and homes. And how old, and how old were you at this at this time now? 32. I was wow. 32. You're still super yeah. young. Super young. And at that time, I had a decent grasp on my money. I, I mostly was investing it, but I was spending it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I was married at 30 by 32, I started spending more. And then I built a huge home in Rancho Santa Fe, uh, started getting into cars, uh, having kids. Uh, and I met Lee Steinberg. Uh, uh what happened is I lost my job, um, from Samsung. They, uh, grew to be the second largest manufacturer of phones, realized, you know, I was just a great salesperson. I wasn't a CEO, especially one that could manage a Fortune 500 company. So they kind of gave me options, and I took the pay-to-leave option, which I highly suggest to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to have to leave, get paid to leave. Right. And uh, But I, I was an angel investor, real estate, stocks still, and I, I just helped a friend on a reality show called Showtime with Magic Johnson, and I met Lee Steinberg, and within 48 hours, 
he offered me my dream job, I always say, to be the CEO of the most notable sports agency in the world. Well, now, and, now Lee Steinberg is the uh, character that Jerry Maguire is based off of, correct? Or yeah, right? yeah it, absolutely. I know a lot of the other agents try to take credit, but Cameron Crowe followed Lee around. And uh, I, I, I can say I actually have seen the poster that Cameron Crowe signed to Lee saying, thank you so much. And he's in the movie, Lee Steinberg. And he also has credits in the movie. So he's the only one of those agents that really was involved in Jerry Maguire. <laughs> Not to stick up for Lee. That got you into the agenting world, right? Which is new for you. Yeah, right at the top, right? And that's all. And from there, my ego really got out of control and um, unfortunately surrounded myself with the wrong people and the wrong ideas. And is, is that years, is that because of the world? Is it is it is it because if it's like it's like entertainment? I'm assuming there's a, a lot of fancy dinners and networking and, and all of that in that sports agenting world. Yeah, I think it was. In all fairness, because I'm still in that world now, uh, probably even more as my own uh, celebrity, my own name brand. But it, it was. I, I think I could have been anywhere with that much money. It, it was more my ego. Like I had reached the point the first time in my life I wasn't happy. I had every single thing that I ever wanted. And I remember lying in bed in my new home uh, two years before I lost everything. I was working with Lee, you know, and uh, two years before I remember lying there going, gosh, I'm not happy. And I couldn't understand why. And that's when I started buying different things and more things and really doing the wrong things and uh it ended up me losing over a hundred million dollars wow and going bankrupt in 2008 so did that happen fast uh no slow okay (laughs) yeah thank god it did it happened slow um but ironically here's the interesting thing i think about my bankruptcy and my enlightenment or transformation is that my transformation occurred in 2006 Two, two years before I lost everything. So I had an interesting experience with bankruptcy because I had been on a two-year transformational journey of enlightenment. I had oh, started right. med- meditating. I had been in search of my lessons. I, you know, what happened two years before was, you know, my wife threatened to leave me and told me that she wasn't happy. And I had to go take stock in who I was or what I wanted to become or she was going to leave me. And my first reaction to that was, you know, F her. I'm going to get a divorce lawyer. I can't believe she'd even say this to me. And it was funny because I clearly remember lying in bed. One of the great things about interviews, right? It takes you back. You have to start remembering things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, like, my own history has taken such formation through all these interviews. But I remember lying in bed thinking, gosh, you know, when I'm 30, my dad told me I was just like him and I was pissed off at him because I'm not a liar, a cheater. Uh, you know, manipulator and overseller and a back end seller. And I'm lying in bed going, uh, maybe I am. <laughs> and then lying in bed thinking two weeks earlier, my best friend told me he wasn't going to hang out with me anymore because he doesn't like who I was hanging out with. And I told him, well, I'm not doing the things that those guys are doing. And he told me, you can lie to me, but don't lie to yourself. And then I was lying in bed about to get divorced thinking, how dare my wife offend me after the life I provided her and it's, you know, the whole world. And then it hit me two years before I was bankrupt. Oh my God, all three of these people who actually care deeply about me are right. I'm just like my father. I'm a liar, a cheater, a manipulator, an overseller and a back end seller. I'm just like my friends, like my best friend told me, I'm doing all the things that I told him I wasn't. And most importantly, I was gonna lose my marriage. The you know, girl who I dreamed about marrying when I was in fourth grade, and I finally got her to go out with me when I was 20, you know, seven. Uh, I was going to lose her because I lost my values. And so, so that, literally, that was the intervention for you. The, the, the wife threatening to leave and your best friend saying that you're not who you used to be. Um, so that was kind of your cold shower. That was a cold shower. And unlike anyone, I, I'm one of those cold turkey guys. You know, I literally made this outline. And for two years, I was living by gratitude, forgiveness, accountability, and inspiration. And everything I did, I was practicing and got into meditation and started to track the secret. And all these things, great things were happening in my life. You know, I was working for Lee Steinberg. All these wonderful things were happening. And all the bad causes and the lessons that I hadn't learned came about. And the great, this is my 
favorite part of the whole thing, hopefully it helps people, is that I remember losing everything and being initially terrified for only two reasons. One, I had to go tell Lee and Warren, and Lee hired me because I was Midas. Like, his branding of me was Jeff Morad had left and bought into the Diamondbacks and now the Padres, and here he has this new financial genius, right? And I was really brought in as a brand for him to be the next Jeff Morad, and I had to go tell him, hey, you know how you, like, are in Sports Illustrated saying how all your your uh, athletes don't go bankrupt, that you care about building a legacy. Hey, well, your CEO is bankrupt. Mm. <laughs> I kind of blow your I kind of blow your story. So I thought he might fire me, but he didn't care. Uh, he was more concerned about me. But even more, I had to go tell my mom, oh, not right. only right. yeah that I went bankrupt, but the worst part, I'd forgotten to take my mom's house out of my name. So I had to go tell her that I was bankrupt and I lost her house. And that and and, a, right, and so move. that meant a lot because as a kid, your whole dream was to buy your mom a house, and, and now as an adult, you have to take that away from her, right? Yeah, and I wasn't so sure how she react, and that's where I learned the lesson of unconditional love because my mom, without blinking, just looked at me and said, "Are you okay? Do you need anything? Do you need some money?" And did have one self. I, I thought she would at least cry and be like what about me where am i gonna live or never still this day my mom never asked me what was gonna happen to her uh and that really hit a chord and the last the last piece of the story was that when i'm i lost my homes i lost everything i, I got one car a rented house rented furniture and i came home with my paycheck i at least had a job good paying job but when you're worth over 100 million dollars Trust me, a, a paycheck as CEO Lee Steinberg doesn't mean much, and you can't afford a house. You have no credit. I literally had rented house, rented furniture, which I had to put a you know deposit down on because nobody would give me any you know leniency on credit. Uh, but I came home with my first paycheck, and I wrote a check, and I showed my wife. I said, I'm going to give this to Warren Moon, who's my business partner's charity called the Crescent Moon Foundation. And... She said, really? I said, yeah. I said, because I never would have been in this blessed life without someone paying for me to go to college. I got a scholarship to go to college, and I'd like to – we went to the same high school, my wife and I. We weren't dating at the time. She hated me. Um, anyway, I said, I want to give a kid from our high school the same opportunity. Is that okay? And my wife started to cry, and she said, you, she said, you finally get it. Mm, that was that was the uh, when she realized that you're now changing or coming back to who you were before the success. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it had been two years, right, that I made this transformation. And I said, yeah, I, I think I finally trust the universe. And she said, if you trust the universe, then double the check. And I oh, wow. Her, oh, yeah. shit. <laughs> and I looked at her. I got a wife who's pregnant at the time. Wow. Three kids, rented house, rented furniture. We just lost over $100 million. And I looked at her and I said, I don't trust the universe that much. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I love that she said that because it, that's a direct reflection of who she is. Yeah. And, I, you know, one of the most upsetting things I do in on stage and in the interviews, I talk about how. I truly believe money bought happiness. I truly believe money bought love. And I would make a joke saying proof that money buys love is that I love my wife in the fourth grade. I had my best friend, that guy that told me on the golf course he wasn't my friend anymore, ask her to go steady at sixth grade camp in front of everyone. And she said, no, tell him to ask me himself. So I threw an egg at her and I used to joke around. It's funny that she didn't start dating me until I was a millionaire. So money must buy love, right? And she, every time I say that, she's like, don't say that. People think that I would only married you for the right. money. <laughs> right. And I go, trust me, later on, if they're listening to the story, if you marry me for the money, I would have, you know, you would have left the skid marks. You would have hung out and then told me um, what it was. But I, I remember that moment because it was so funny. Cause still today I live my life to make a lot of money, help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. But I think it's important for people to know that I still am afraid of giving. That there's a piece in a part of me that Wait, why, why are you I afraid donate of a lot of money because I sometimes dive back into not enough. That, oh, oh my God, what if you know? What, I got kids that aren't in college. What? How can I you know build a community center in Africa? What you know? I should be building a house, for, a new house for my mom. Like all these scarce thoughts of not trusting what got me here, though not trusting what my wife said. Right, double it, and. 
I go back to center and I trust it. And the more that I do, the more that comes. And But I want everyone to know that, you know, I'm surrounded by some of the biggest and greatest world thought leaders. I just did this beautiful TV show called The World's Greatest Motivators with Sharon Lecter and Bob Proctor and Les Brown and, you know, John Astaroff and, you know, unbelievable Jack Canfield and all of them, all of them as wise and as enlightened and as many people that they've impacted in their lives, they all were completely vulnerable. Lisa Nichols and Dr. Beckwith, Reverend Breckwith, all of those people, they fight the same things that everyone fights. I think the only difference between all of us is that we practice it more and we get back to center more, but we have the exact same feelings, you know, but it's not where we live, right? It's not yeah, where we live. It's we not where live you live. In the, yeah, we live in the peaceful stuff. We allow fear to visit us but we don't live in it. I, I love that you said that. And one of the things that I love about you is your transparency. And that's kind of what draws me to you. And I think that's what a lot, that, that's what a lot of people are drawn to you is because you seem just like a, you know, a real dude. And I love that you said that because I think many people, because I mean, you know, I, I can't relate to having a hundred million dollars at one point in my life. Um, I think a lot of people see people like you and you're different, right? You're um, not not relatable, you know, you have your story, you're, you're, you're this, you're that. And so by you saying that, you know, I also have fears, it's also hard for me to give, um, you know, the, to double the, the giving back and all of that and pulling that curtain back. Um, I think it makes a lot of people um, realize that at the end of the day, we all have, we're all human. We're all, you know, we all have our own things, right? Absolutely. And I think that is where I love to inspire people is between the truth and the ego-based consciousness, if I can educate people on what the ego does, right, the ability to separate us, to create fear, anxiety, inferiority, superiority, resentment, offense, angry, frustrated, anxious, depression, all these things. I mean, one of the key components of my entire life is just the trend of suicide. Like for, for me, the fact that people are so sad that they'd rather not be here. Right. They'd rather not be here. And it's like and I know we have a whole bunch of varying degrees. But in the end, to me, I want to empower people to say, hey, everybody feels this way. Let me teach you how to practice not feeling that way. It's all in your, your head. And, you know, let me help you with very simple techniques to do that. And that's truly my life mission. Is your is your dial now turned on that meaning service giving back, um, teaching, mentoring, and all of that? I mean, you also s still have a company and you're also still building, correct? Correct. I believe that they both fit hand in hand. That receiving and giving are one, and that one attracts the other, and the other attracts the one. Okay, wait. You explain that because I think that's a really important topic, and I think it's something that you definitely—it's a flag that you've been waving. Um, the the giving and uh, 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 you know receiving. Like I, receiving. Yes, I mean, I also love that you're like, I want to make a lot of money, but I also want to have fun, and I want to help people. Yeah, and I think you know, just thinking of having fun. It's you know, I surround myself with the right people, the right ideas, and the right circumstances. But I find the light in everything I do. That's how I have fun. I'm one of those people, you ever met a little kid that he could have fun with a box? You know, I love this story about the kid that gets all these, the spoiled kid, he gets all these unbelievably expensive Christmas gifts and he plays with the box, right? He's in the box. That That's who I am. Yeah, and I, I, I can I just say real quick, if you're listening, um, so I met David just a few days ago for the first time, and that's the kind of energy I felt in you is just uh, there, there was a positivity from you uh, that wasn't, you know, super cheerleady, but also wasn't fake. And it just seemed like you're really good at uh, just seeing the glasses half full. Yeah. Which is very hard to do, though. by the way. It is hard. It's a yeah. good muscle to build, though, right? And the more full you see the glass, the better off you'll be. And that's what I practice. But it comes from, you know, that's the one part of it. Now, making a lot of money and, and helping a lot of people are the giving and receiving part. Once I shifted the paradigm that nothing happens to me, I am not a victim. Right. Right. There's no why me in my life. There's only try me in my life. And the try me in my life only expands and accelerates and allows me to grow. And I'm grateful for all the try me things in my life. I am not a happen to me person. I used to be a for me person, very positive, but everything happened for me. But there's only so much of me. And that world is a world of just enough. The world of to me is a world of not enough. 
But when I shifted the paradigm, and this is where giving and receiving are one, when I shifted the paradigm to realize that everything I gave opened up my vessel, opened up a void for me to ask for more so I could give even more through me with appreciation. Everything that I receive, I add value to it and I give it away. And nothing's more motivating, nothing makes me feel more worthy than being in the pursuit of my potential with a purpose. Here's what's funny about the why question. Billions of dollars are made helping people find their why. I can ruin the entire business because I believe everybody already knows their why. That's not the problem. The why for everybody is to help someone do something. Is to help the kids with their education, with cancer. Everyone has a why. Everyone knows their why. It's to help. The problem most people have is they don't know their what. And so I want to be the master of what. Let me help show you what you want, what to do, all of those things. The what and the how are way more important than the why. You know, we, we just, so many people are paralyzed because they don't know what they want. Right. They literally, you can ask them. People all the time, what do you want? I don't know. You wait, wait, what you know? What are you studying for? I don't know, right? Why are you going to? I don't know. You haven't thought about what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no wonder you're so confused. And so I really want to help people. You know, I want a lot of money. That's what I want. Why? Because money is the currency of this vibration. Money is an object of energy that you put into the flow. When you put it into the flow, pragmatically, the more money you have, the more you can get. Money does not buy happiness. It does not buy love. But what it does is it allows you to shop. And if you shop for the right things, you'll be happy. If you shop for the wrong things, you won't be. And so I live my life wanting a ton of money and learning the lessons to shop for the right things so that I can be happy. Mm. And those things include building community centers in Africa, helping kids with scholarships to college, giving books to junior achievement, and all the other things that I do uh, in order to effectuate all the money coming through me for others. Uh, You talk a lot about state Right, you talk it all out about. I love uh, what you say about not living below the line. Can you explain that? Yeah, I stole this from my mom. You know, everything I've stolen from someone. By the way, I just have a different way of articulating it. So, uh, I'm doing my best I can to transcode the genius that I've learned. But my mom always said to me, "Stop living below the line." And with six kids, it was so easy to live in blame, shame, and justification. Right? There's always somebody I could blame. There's always being, you know, with my personality and intellect, the ability to justify anything I did, and which would result in shame. And so my mom always said, live above the line in accountability. And what that meant was there's only two things that you need to know. One, what did I do to attract this to myself? And two, what am I supposed to learn from it? Mm. And I didn't realize till I got older, I got the attraction side as I got older, you know, that I was accountable for every single thing I was attracting. It doesn't mean I was liable or responsible, but I attracted it to me. So what I didn't get was how important lessons were, Mm -hmm. that the power of my life, if my quest was to learn as much as I could, that there were no mistakes. There was only blessings. Giving and receiving became one because my life was about lessons. And the more lessons I learned, the better. The more lessons I learned, it would result. If I didn't learn, the lessons would keep coming if I didn't learn them and they'd result in pain. So if I got pain in my life, I knew that was an indication, not that my plan was going bad, but simply that I had to learn a lesson and I was getting better because every lesson that I learned. Now, the two most interesting things about the lessons that I learned that really fascinate me is number one, I will forget every lesson that I ever learned. So I teach gratitude, empathy, which is forgiveness, accountability, and inspiration and effective communication. As yeah, well. you call this the, f- I, the four values, correct? Four values. I forget them every day. Like these are, I, I've written books about them. You've heard a million interviews about them. I, you know me for a week and you already know my four values. And I forget, I am not grateful all day long. I am not forgiving all day long. I am not accountable all day long and I'm not inspired all day long, but I'm practicing. But I know one thing that as much as I forget every lesson that I've ever learned, I have the power to access and remember any lesson that I want, including ones that I don't even know. But is it possible to be um, grateful all day long and empathetic all day long and, and all, I mean, all the stuff, the, the higher vibration stuff? I mean, don't we ebb and flow and isn't it a, a life practice? Yep. Yeah. You nailed it. That, in that 
just that enlightenment right there. If people want to take a snippet from this interview, just remember it's a life's journey to learn how to best go back to center and to live in truth consciousness and to deal with not remembering, right? What does that mean? Not remembering. So I am not connecting to the highest source of power, light, and energy that exists. Not remembering. Remember, put back together, right? I'm not remembering. So if I can remember, meaning clear the connection to that which inspires me, get rid of the corrosion, the interference, the ego-based things that create that illusion of unhappiness, and try to live the majority of my existence every day in a state of happiness— because I make a conscious choice to frame my day in happiness and know and be cognizant and aware of when I am not happy and create a better system to get back to happiness when I get out of happiness instead of living in unhappiness. <laughs> the question that I get a lot is how do I get unstuck? And I, and I, and I feel like maybe you are talking about the solution to that. Uh, for people who feel stuck and for people who you know are are maybe not in a good place financially or emotionally or even when you were talking about earlier you know not wanting to live anymore um, what would you say to those people to to get unstuck to start to live above the line how how what would be the first step to that the first step is to get stuck being stuck so what i mean by that is most people think that stuck is a shortage void or obstacle i believe stuck is an accelerate a state of acceleration and growth if you truly analyze being stuck, you'll realize that you're growing and accelerating. So are you, you know, is, is a butterfly stuck when it's, you know, trying to get out of its cocoon? Is it stuck as it's pounding the walls of a cocoon with its wings? No. What it's doing is it's accelerating and growing so it strengthens its wings enough to break out of the cocoon. And when it breaks out of the cocoon, because it strengthens its wing to the point where it could break out, it has the ability to fly. If you cut a hole and allowed the butterfly to come out without that, it would die. It wouldn't be able to fly. But instead, everyone thinks they're stuck in a cocoon instead of thinking that they're accelerating and growing so that they're strong enough to fly higher. They're not stuck. So I say, get stuck getting stuck. What does that mean? Get really focused and say, you know what? I'm going to really build because now I know why I'm pounding the walls of my cocoon. So, so I'm getting stronger. So you're saying getting stuck is actually part of the process. You're saying that um, the only way through is actually through getting stuck. So instead of trying to get unstuck, lean into your, your stuckness, <laughs> if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, lean into your stuckness. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Um, I'll steal that from you. Lean into your stuckness. Let me ask you this. <laughs> when you had that two-year cushion of um, turning your life around, and at, the, at this point you have not hit bankruptcy and you're making a ton of money, you're, you're on you know, cloud nine – uh, when the bankruptcy hit, did you then question the universe and everything that you were practicing? Meaning, do, you know, was it confusing to you that you were now living in a higher frequency and you were, you know, checked by your friend and, 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 and being a better husband and all of that? And suddenly out of that came bankruptcy. Like, did that confuse you? It, it did not. That, it, what confused me is how scared my wife was. Right. I, I, I you know, had been through this and. I was just really confused because she was so scared and she was more scared when I asked her, like, I don't get it. Like, what are you so worried about? Because, you know, I literally caught her crying to her uncle in the kitchen and she's like, you know, I'm terrified. I don't know what we're going to do. We lost everything. And, you know, I wonder if he can pull us out. And her uncle said to her, still chokes me up. He said, you know, this kid I've known since he was 10 years old. He goes, he goes, <laughs> he's always always been able to make money he's always been successful i can't wait to see what he does with his back against the wall oh wow right which fired yeah. me up and i and i asked her i said well, you know why are you so concerned you know and I, I don't understand your fear she said because you're not do you even care i'm like oh i'm not concerned because it took me nine months to make a million dollars i knew nobody i had a hundred thousand dollars of law loans i literally never had a real job before in my life I stayed focused on productivity accessibility, meaning I was going to be twice as productive as anyone else. I was going to work twice as many productive hours. I was going to be twice as efficient, twice as statistically successful. I was going to separate myself as activity I get paid for, activity I get paid for. I was going to work 56 days a week. And that's how I made a million dollars from straight math. And I said, I know a ton of people. They like me. I have had a job for years. 
I know what I'm doing and I'm more productive, I'm more efficient, and I'm more statistically successful than other. Just give me a couple weeks to make my first couple million dollars. I guarantee it. That's why I'm not scared. Yeah, (laughs) that's what she said. That's what she said. And I, I will tell you, it took me a couple of weeks to make my first million dollars. Wow. You know, when you're, um, I think you said your uncle, uh, when, when he said, uh, I'm curious to see what he does with his back against a wall, I started hearing the Rocky song, and now I'm seeing your rebirth. So take us through now the rebuilding of you and where, where you're at today and your current company. <laughs> I love the fact that you think of the Rocky song, because that two years before I went bankrupt, when I was depressed in bed thinking through how I was going to, you know, get divorced and ruin my life. The one thing when I went and started, uh, you know, I was crying just sitting there going, I really screwed this up. I, I it was the only time I was depressed. And then Rocky came on. I'm a huge Rocky fan. Mm. The original Rocky came on TV yeah. and I was, it's the end of the movie. Just, he was getting his butt kicked and he kept getting up, right? He would be knocked down. Everybody knows the scenes. He'd right. be back up, right. back up. And that's what I told myself. I'm like, damn, if I can look up, I can get up. And uh, so that that Rocky song was basically uh, when I wanted to make money, I started getting focused uh, on making money. I started analyzing how do you make money. And I said, you know what? So many people are so busy working, they forget to make money. The essence of making money to me became very clear is that I needed to figure out how to provide value to people and create a margin for myself by creating more value and having them be 100% confident that I would provide more value and guarantee it than they would receive. And so I went to all the most powerful people that I knew, that I'd built relationships over the years, that I had done nice things for and good things. Some I did nice things and good things, not unconditionally. I did it to trade so that they would think I was a nice person or generous or whatever it was. I was a manipulator. But I did nice things. I went to them to redeem myself and ask, how can I be a service? What do you need? That was my only intention. And I asked within that first week, probably 100 different people. I went to galas. I went anywhere I could on the phone, in person, going to the most wealthy, powerful people. And I found my first business deal uh, where I was able to go get some watches from a CEO and get them to an importer and create a margin uh, in a very simple negotiation. I think the guy said, look, you know, I'll buy these for 10 million. I put together the list. I took it to the watch manufacturer and I said, I got 8 million for this. And we negotiated within maybe 10 minutes to 9 million and it left a million dollars net for me. Wow. And I came home back with my first million dollars and literally within, I would say two weeks of when, uh, my bankruptcy filed afterwards that I was able to recoup. Um, I still had a rented house and car and nobody would let me buy a house, but it certainly gave me a uh, confidence that there was going to be no problem, uh, having a return. Uh, so it's really funny though, because my biggest concern about going bankrupt was what people would think of me. Right. You mean, you, you mean I, the, uh, the, 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 the external, right? Um, the not, external, not what yeah, you like, think of yourself. But what other people yeah, think of you. What other people thought. And then I had a mentor, David Corbin, and he wrote a book called Illumination. And I was in this men's group with some really great Brian Smith, the founder of Ugg Boots, Rob Angel, the founder of, of Pictionary, myself. And I'm looking around this table going, you know what? I may be bankrupt, but like, you know, these guys are awesome. And I'm in this group. And so I asked Corbin, I was like, well, you know, what should I do? Should I tell people that I'm the biggest loser or failure? He goes, is that what you are? I said, no, you know what I mean? I'm bankrupt. And he said, yeah. He goes, well, imagine if you were a convicted felon, right? Would you just finish your life and not do business with anyone? Does that mean you can't do business anywhere if you paid your price to society? Which is really ironic because Jordan Belfort is a good friend of mine. And he illuminates, obviously, they got did a goddamn movie how screwed up he is. Yeah, he's but the guy I, from The Wolf of Wall Street, right? The Wolf of Wall Street, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's a good friend. And he's an awesome guy, but he's an epitome of what I did. Yeah. Instead of hiding behind it, I wrote a book about it. I got on stages about it. I started screaming from the top of the thing saying, hey, I made all these mistakes. Here's the lessons that I've learned. I've lost everything, and let me help you because you may have had challenges that are similar to these. Let me share my lessons so you don't have to do it. Tell us about 
Cell cellular memory. I read this in your book and the power of doing things daily because I think it's really practical and I think a lot of people listening, um, I want them to take away uh, not only your energy and everything you're saying, but something that is very practical they, that they could actually start you know, implementing today. I'm glad you asked as we come to the close of the interview. This is to the essence of what I teach. This is to the essence of how we learn. There's three different realms of how the human body, mind, and soul work. And the first is the cellular memory. The cellular memory exists within the conscious world. It's in our bodies. It's the inputs that we have are 10,000 thoughts or data points a day. And out of those 10,000 thoughts or data points, we get it through our eyesight, our nose, our ears, our mouth, and our touch, our five senses. And we want to control the inputs so we have the most positive inputs every single day. I always say two minutes of meditation is worth two hours on a weekend. And what happens is the cellular memory is really stupid. It only remembers from the time we open our eyes till the time we close it. So in order to effectuate any type of, uh, of expansion, we need to have that memory every day. And depending on your genetics, it's a minimum of 21 days before it goes from the conscious, the cellular memory, to your intermediate memory, which is your subconscious. And the subconscious becomes 40,000 of the same thoughts you have every day. And the subconscious to me is so important because people ignore the subconscious. In other words, they ignore their sleep. Sleep's the number one habit that all human beings share. It's the number one habit that more people spend more time doing than any other habit. And it's the most ignored habit of, of all. If you don't have and study sleep, you're a fool. If you don't have a sleep coach, a sleep mentor, I think you're missing a third of your life and you're missing the ability to expand and accelerate your subconscious so that you're working while you're not, your eyes aren't open. It's the easy work. And so, so many people ignore what they're inputting, what they're storing in their intermediate memory, which directly affects our quantum memory, which is our unconscious. Our unconscious holds our DNA, our chromosomes. It has an epigenetic layer that can activate and deactivate four generations of memory or more. I believe it's way more. I believe it's multiple, multiple lifetimes of memory. But let's just take the four generations of memory, great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and you. We have a quantum memory with your personality traits, your characteristics, obsessions, and addictions that create a frequency that really dictate your life. So no matter what you think, say, do, and believe, you're going to continually attract the exact same things determined upon your personality traits, obsessions, addictions, and characteristics, your quantum frequency. That frequency is a honing system that attracts what you want. So, so many people will tell you, Dave, I'm doing the right things. I'm saying the right things. I'm believing the right things, you know, and I see them, you know, really good people working hard, working smart, going to church, really good parents, and they don't get, my mom's a classic example of this. My mom is such a great person, thinks, says, does, and believes all the right things. But she has a quantum memory, and it's a resistant memory. You could drop all the money in the world to her, and she wouldn't have it. Right? I believe you could drop all the money in the world to the desert and redistribute itself to the exact same people because of frequency, because it's an energy. She, she, remi she so actually reminds me of my mom. If my mom won the lottery tomorrow, she would, say all, she would be mad about the taxes she has to pay on the $200 million. <laughs> right right i get it but it, it but we have to understand the continuum and so that's why practice is so important what you do every day the disciplines you know james clear wrote the book atomic habits i think it's an excellent book to help people from the cellular memory to the subconscious memory to the conscious quantum memory i know and i'm aware of what quantum memory i'm you know born with good and bad right i'm born with the natural ability to track wealth but i'm also born a bullshitter right? A liar, manipulator, cheater, an overseller, and a back-end seller. That's how I'm able to attract wealth. But I have to be very cognizant of the fact that I need to shift that the same as an alcoholic would have to understand that I'm going to break the chain, right? I'm not going to be stuck or hostage. I'm going to break the chain because I'm accelerating and growing. I'm building my wings so I can break out of being stuck into manipulation, lying, cheating, overselling, and back and selling. I'm breaking the chain, and I'm conscious of it. I'm subconscious of it, and I'm unconscious of it. And sooner or later, it's been 11 years, I'm really much, much better than I am. And when this ugly frequency head reaches out and I see that person that was just like my father, I say to myself, I'm so grateful that I'm aware of it. I forgive myself. I am accountable. I know the lesson that I learned. It's time to go back to center 
clear that connection, get rid of the interference and, and the corrosion, and be inspired to be a better you, to consistently, every day, persistently, without quit, I am pursuing my potential to mm. be my higher self. I love it. Wow. What, what a way to end. And I just want to say that I am also a huge believer in the subconscious. I believe, you know, that 90% of our, our, where we pull from is the subconscious. And I think that uh, we're going to learn a lot more about the subconscious, you know, as we kind of evolve and grow. Um, so that and the false beliefs and, you know, how, uh, I mean, even, even your story at, at, you know, five years old and how you uh, made a decision or wanting to get, get rich and then that in your subconscious directing you. And, and of course, you know, turning into reality, um, yeah, I think, I think all of what you're saying is uh, really fascinating and thank you for sharing your wisdom. I want to, I want to end with one question from me. Um, and I know you talk a lot about business and entrepreneurship. Um, I'm a licensed marriage family therapist, which means I talk a lot about relationships and love. What is your secret? If you could just pick one, um, which I know is hard to your marriage, because I think it's so rare that you married someone that you've known since the fourth grade. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think the secret to my marriage is radical humility. Um, like, you know, because it's the ego that tells me to put faith in what I don't want in my marriage. And it's the humility that tells me to put faith in what I do want and to be of service and to provide value and to respect and to honor and to appreciate the person that literally is the most relative person in my life, which is my wife. And it has nothing to do, I think, about knowing her for so long uh, because we really didn't date till later. In fact, I think she probably wishes she wasn't married to me for the first <laughs> 10 years of our marriage. Uh, but the last 12 years, I'm a different person. And uh, I, I think it's the most valuable thing I have, uh, that relationship in my, my life. And I wouldn't even have told you my 10 years ago or 12 years ago, my wife was my friend. I, I, I wouldn't have told you she's my friend. And now not only is she my best friend, but she's the most remarkable, wonderful person. And you can't say that in an intimate relationship unless you are completely humble, that you are you know, grateful for what someone else. She's not perfect, uh, but she's perfect for me. And she makes me such a better person. And, you know, to end on this line, since I have such relations with Jerry McGuire, she oh, nice! I thought you were gonna, I thought you were going to say show me the money, but uh, she completes me is better. I like yeah, that one better. No, the money's easy. <laughs> she it. completes me. Um, I I totally know what you mean, and what a great way to end, uh, David. Where can people find you and follow you as you document your story? Thank you. Yeah, lots of my just remember my name, David Meltzer. It's at David Meltzer on Instagram, David Meltzer on LinkedIn, David Meltzer on YouTube. Google David Meltzer if you do Dave Meltzer. You're going to find the oh. wrestling guy. I'm <laughs> right. Maybe in sports, but I'm definitely right. not the wrestling guy. I'm David Meltzer. And uh, and once again, my website is my first initial last name, dmeltzer.com. But otherwise, David Meltzer. David, will thank find you me. for being such a catalyst today and uh, creating a dialogue with me. Um, amazing story, amazing accomplishments. And I just, I love that you pull from your heart. Vice versa, my friend. I know we'll have a long, friendly relationship. Yeah, I am so impressed by you, John, and I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, thanks, brother. Okay, be well.